Ezra chapter 5 begins this way, verse 1, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then accordingly we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai sent, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and his companions. Persians who were in the region beyond the river to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him in which was written thus. And we'll look at that letter momentarily. Uh, last week we finished uh, chapter 4, and it wasn't exactly a victorious note. Um, we saw the, the opposition that the Jews had received since they had begun rebuilding the temple, just as God had commanded them. He's brought them back into their land to restore worship among his people, and that word naturally faced opposition from their enemies. And after they had sent a letter to the king, they received orders that the work should stop, and by physical force, armed force, um, they had to cease their work. And now it's been a number of years uh, between chapter, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And what once seemed like a great work, what seemed like uh, the, the, the carrying out of God's promises uh, appears to, to no longer be in progress. It, it appears to be falling apart um, and that God is no longer at work. And I think there's probably a lot of churches uh, that are in that same condition. Maybe at one time they did see uh, a work of God and they saw a move of the Lord um, and, and some great things were done. Some, some work was accomplished. The Spirit moved in their midst. People were saved and, and uh, Christians were revived and then met some opposition or some hardship or something came up along the way and the work stopped. And, and maybe you can't even uh, pinpoint a time in some of those places where, where the work stopped, but just gradually over time, it's not going on like it was before. It doesn't seem like God is present and active and, and keeping His promises, and, and He seems like He's not at work as He once was. But as we move into chapter 5 and chapter 6, one theme that I see, and one thing that we see all through uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as well, is this uh, theme of faithfulness. We see the faithfulness of God, and we see the faithfulness of God in our own lives and all throughout Scripture. And we also see that many times God is faithful and carries out His faithfulness in response to the faithfulness of His people. Now let me be clear, God is faithful whether you are or not. Because there are many days when I am not all that faithful. But God is faithful. But there are many times that He has certain works that He desires to do that He does in response to the faithfulness of His own people. 
And so where do we see the role of faithfulness in the renewal of God's work in chapter 5 and 6 here? The first way that I see here is the faithfulness to preach. The faithfulness to preach, and that's by the prophets. Verse 1 says, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And, and if you can find it, just flip over to the book of Haggai just for a minute. It's the third uh, from the end of the Old Testament. The third book from the end of the Old Testament. Last week I, I read to you a small portion from Zechariah, so you sort of have a flavor of, of his preaching. But here's something about the message that Haggai preached during this time. And you just remember this context, that the work has ceased on the temple. The people are still in Jerusalem, but they're not working. They're, God doesn't seem to be fulfilling His promises anymore. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 1 in Haggai says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. This is what God says. This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. God looks at His people and he, he sees what they're doing and He hears what they're saying and He says, these people are saying that I'm not ready to do my work. The people are saying that I'm not ready to rebuild my temple. I'm not ready to have worship restored. I delivered you from your enemies. I brought you back just as I promised. But now the people are saying that it isn't time for God's work to be accomplished. So verse 3, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, again, this is the word of God. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? That's an indictment. Is it time for you to have your homes in good condition? You have your paneled houses and everything you need for comfortable living. But the temple of God... To be in ruins. Now therefore, verse 5, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. A lot of times we just slip into a, a way of life and a way of thinking and we don't really think about why we do the things that we do. But Haggai says, stop, consider what you're doing. Think about what I'm saying. Think about what's going on around you right now. He says, you've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. He doesn't say, what do you think the time is? What do you think needs to be done? Here's what the Lord says. Take up your tools and go build the temple. Go finish the work that's been started. Reestablish the worship that is to be in Jerusalem. You looked for much, verse 9, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Now, Zechariah's message was a little more uplifting. 
Zechariah came and he preached and he said, you know, the, the hands of Zerubbabel started this work and by the word of God, the hands of Zerubbabel will finish it. God will complete the work he started. Haggai comes along and says, why aren't you working? You're living in a nice house. What about God's house? You're taking care of your things, your personal life, but what about the worship of God? What about the proclamation of God to the world? What is this testimony that you're giving to the world when you live in a nice place, but God's house is in ruins? And apparently, in judgment, God had not let them prosper. They worked, they had food, but not enough. They had clothes, but they weren't warm. They, they had money, but it was like they were put in a bag with holes. God had not prospered them because they had not been obedient to do what He had called them to do. They were not doing the will of God. I wonder, I wonder if the work of God in the churches today, and, and maybe even in our church, aren't prospering and aren't going forth and aren't growing because we've given so much attention to our own homes, so much attention to our own lives, our own prosperity, our own comfort, that we've neglected the worship of God and the proclamation of His name. Friends, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me. I love being comfortable. I love having it easy. I love not being stressed. I love hobbies. I love reading books. I like going on trips. But have I, in pursuit of these things, neglected the worship of God as He deserves? Friends, there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that is worth trading the worship of God for. And, and I'm not just talking about gathering on Sunday mornings, but I am talking about gathering on Sunday mornings. So I understand that in, in many cases people have to work, but I would say there are probably fewer legitimate reasons for missing church on Sunday for work than what we give credit and what we allow people for. You know, sports and activities and hobbies are great, but whenever they come into conflict with the worship of God, what takes priority? Having fun and doing things on Fridays and Saturdays are great, but if they're going to wear you out to the point that you can't make it to church on Sunday, is it worth doing? And listen, I'm not just talking about worship on Sunday. It is important. It is included. But I'm not just talking about that. Whatever in your life, Monday to Saturday, that keeps you from the Word of God and prayer and worshiping God at home privately, is it worth it? Nothing inherently wrong with television, so long as you're not watching garbage. But if it keeps you from spending time in the Word of God and in prayer, is it worth it? I like to read books. I like to read Christian books. But can I be honest with you? Sometimes it's, it's easier to linger in a Christian book than it is to pick up the Word of God and to spend time with the Lord in prayer. And even our good things, even our homes, even the, the things that God has blessed us with can take priority over what's most important, and that is the worship of God. And in that moment, the good thing becomes sin. And that's the message that Haggai brought to the people. You've got your homes, you're taking care of your own things, you're enjoying life, but the temple's in ruins. 
We spend a lot of time taking care of our personal lives, but how is it affecting our worship of God and our obedience to the commands that he's given? This was Haggai and Zechariah, and they were faithful to preach. And I pray that God would raise up more men to preach boldly and faithfully, even from this congregation, who would be faithful to declare the word of God. So we see faithfulness to preach. We see faithfulness to obey. Good sermon's sort of useless without a response, right? Look at there, verse 2. He says, So Zerubbabel, they've heard the message of Haggai, they've heard the message of Zechariah, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up. And what'd they do? They began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And they had been stopped by armed force a few years ago. But they hear the word of God, they hear the message from God, and they sort of set those things aside, and they just decide, you know what, we've got to get back to work, fellas. We've got to get back to this issue of worship. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So then Tadani, the governor of the region beyond the river, he's sort of a new name for us in this story, comes along with Sheshthar, Bosni, and their companions, and they said, who commanded you to build this temple and to build this wall? Verse 4 in the, the New King James says, Then accordingly we told them the names of the men who were constructing the building. I think most other translations say that they also asked for the names of the men who were constructing the building. It sort of gets personal there. Like, we want to know who told you to build it, and we want the names of the people out here working. Now, if the government comes along and asks you questions like that, there's probably some shady business going on. We want to know who's here, who told you to do it, and who's working right now. But look at verse 5, it says, But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. The word of God, the message of God, had such an impact on them that they recognized that the eye of God was upon them. Now, it's chapter 5, the eye of God's upon them. Was the eye of God upon them in chapter 4 when all the pushback was happening? Was the eye of God upon them when they were facing opposition and being forced to stop? Yes. You can't turn the eye of the Lord away from his people. What's the difference in chapter 4 and chapter 5? Now they believe it. Now they've heard the word of God and they've responded and they recognize that the eye of God is upon them. Friend, God sees you at all times. And that can either be really comforting or really terrifying. Because when we're trying to do the right thing and we're trying to, to worship the Lord and to do His work and we recognize that the eye of God is upon us, it's going to keep anyone from being able to stop us from doing what God's called us to do, just like it did in chapter 5. But it also means when we're not being faithful and we're giving more attention to our own lives than to God's work, His eye's on us then too. And He sees our sin. But here, in this case, the eye of their God was upon them and it motivated them. They knew that God was with them. They could not make them cease. Okay, so here we're going to write more letters. So they send a letter to Darius the king. And don't, don't mix this Darius up with the same Darius uh, from Daniel chapter 6. Different Darius. Verse 8, uh, here's the letter they wrote. It says, let it be known to the king... That we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones, and timbers being laid in the walls, and the work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. They even called God the great God. They, they saw the work that the people were doing, and that was the testimony they received, that this must be a great God. 
Verse 9, we, we spoke to the elders and asked them, Who commanded you to build these walls and the temple? We asked their names. In verse 11, here was their answer. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we're rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel had completed. Who gave you the commandment to rebuild this, wall, this temple? Who is it that's out there working right now? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Well, let me tell you. We are the servants of the great God of Israel. The God of heaven and earth. The God who allowed the first temple to be built. But then they confessed their sin even to these people. Verse 12 says, Because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath. He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. He goes on in verse 14 and 15 to tell how Nebuchadnezzar went and got the articles from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, and, and Cyrus sends them back with him to Jerusalem. So verse 17, here's the request of the enemies of the Jews to the king. Now therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. This is the, the faithfulness of God's people to obey. They heard the word of God, they responded, they began to work, they recognized that the eye of God was upon them and there was nothing anyone could do to stop them from the work. Their enemies had to try to find more strength and they went to the king. And friends, you know what Matthew chapter 6 says? Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. You don't have to make your personal life your highest priority. Because if you make God your highest priority, you pursue the work of His kingdom, you pursue His righteousness, He'll take care of the other things. And so now we see this repentance, we see this obedience, this shift in Zerubbabel and the leaders of the Jews. And now they're back to work. They're obeying and doing what God has commanded. And we have to do exactly the same. We have to hear the word of God and we have to change. We have to repent and be obedient to what God has called us to do. To pursue, to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. To prioritize worship in our daily lives. Prioritize worship as we come to our Bibles and as we go to the Lord in prayer. To designate time and space to do those things and to be with Him. God doesn't care what you do for Him if you never be with Him. I'll just go ahead and tell you this. We'll just be transparent about it. I told our deacons that same thing at our January meeting. It doesn't matter what you do as deacons as long as you aren't being Christians. Not to say they weren't. I'm just trying to emphasize the priority. It's more important that you be faithful Christians, that you be with the Lord Jesus, than that you do anything for Him. We've got lots of stuff to do. But before we do anything, we have to emphasize our relationship with Him, our closeness, our intimacy, our fellowship with Him in the Word and in prayer. And that's for all Christians. You have to be a Christian before you can do the things Christians do. You have to walk with the Lord before you can work with the Lord. 
So we see the faithfulness to preach by the prophets. We see the faithfulness to obey by the people. And then we see the faithfulness to keep promises. And who does that? That's God. Faithfulness to keep promises. So chapter 6 begins that Darius issued a decree that search was made in the archives. They found the records and they wrote back. Verse 3 of chapter 6, in the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices. Let the foundations of it be firmly laid, and its height 60 cubits, and its width 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. He talks about the gold and the silver being brought from the temple. Verse uh, 6, Now therefore, Tatani, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar, Bosni, and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. And I, just, I don't know what they were expecting this letter to say. Maybe they were expecting a response from the king saying, yeah, we can't find anything about this temple being rebuilt. Just go ahead and tell them to stop. But as they begin to read, they see that indeed there has been a decree that God did move the heart of Cyrus the king. That God did send the people back by that man. And now their command from their king in God keeping his promises is keep yourselves far from there. Don't go near those people. Let them do the work that they've gone to do. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Oh, and by the way, help them pay for it. Verse 8, Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of the Jews, for the building of the house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from the taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to the, these men, so they are not hindered. He says, whatever they need for their offerings, whatever they need for their sacrifices, you, you provide it for them. Don't let them lack anything. So, yes, there's a decree. Oh, by the way, help them. Oh, and also, if you don't, I'll kill you. Verse 11. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, if you disobey, if you try to hinder the work of God that's going on in Jerusalem, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it. Oh, and more than that, let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. So yes, God sent His people back. Yes, God kept His promise. Yes, they're supposed to be building the temple. Hey, help them pay for it with the taxes. Oh, also, I'll kill you. And more than that, I'll turn your house into a dung pile. And may the God who causes His name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. And why on earth would a pagan king who worshipped a multitude of gods give this kind of protection to the house of God in Jerusalem and to the people of God? Because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God is still in control. Even whenever the work had stopped, even when they were forced to cease, God was still in control. And now he is letting them resume the work that he's called them to do. Verse 13 says, Then Tatani, the governor, uh, and Shethar Bosni, their companions, diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. Yeah, I bet they did. They obeyed. And verse 14 says, So the elders of the Jews built, they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet, 
uh, and Zechariah the son of Iddo, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now verse 15 says, The temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the descendants of the captivity, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. God's prophets were faithful to preach. God's people heard the word and were faithful to obey. And in response, God was faithful to keep his promises. He completed the work that he had sent them to do. And worship was restored there in Jerusalem. Now there's more things that are going to happen. We've got, we're halfway through the book. But the temple's been built. Friends, when we heed the word of God and we obey what God has commanded and we give attention to our souls before God and our relationship, our fellowship with him, God is faithful to keep his promises. Jesus told the disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a promise. And that ought to motivate us to be faithful in obedience to Him. That starts with confession. Recognizing our sin. Recognizing our complacency. Our priorities that are misplaced. And to repent. And to turn back to God. And to resume His work that He's called us to do. And he will bless it. He will prove Himself faithful. God honors the faithfulness of His people with His own faithfulness. Now let me say it again. God is faithful whether you are or not. God will accomplish His purposes. He doesn't need you to do it. And if you won't do it, He'll get somebody else who will. I'll just be honest. I want to be a part of God's work. I want Simmons Grove to be a part of the work that God is doing in the world right now. God is active. He is on the move. He is saving people. Disciples are being made. Churches are being planted. Places are being revived. I want to be a part of it. I'm not going to sit on the sidelines. Comfortably though I may be. May we confess and repent and join God in the work that He's doing. He will keep His promises. The rest of the chapter, chapter 6 here, describes how they began keeping the festivals and the feasts and, the, and, and, and bringing the offerings again. And they specifically kept the Passover. You see, when their worship was restored and now they're able to, to do it rightly, it proclaimed the need for and the provision of the, an atonement for sin. You see, they've got their enemies all around. They see the work that God has done in restoring the worship in Jerusalem. And now they observe these people coming and bringing lambs and sacrifices as an offering for sin. And what does that tell the people around? That there's a need for a sacrifice. That atonement must be made and that God has made provision for it. Friends, when the, when the church worships rightly, when the church is faithful and obedient and worships God as we ought, it proclaims to the world around us the need for and the provision of atonement for sin. 
Because they brought lambs and sacrifices day after day, year after year. But when Jesus came, John declared, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is no more sacrifice that needs to be made because the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God laid down His life willingly for you and for me. Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the dead. And now we can be born again, washed, made clean, and free in the sight of God. And when we worship Him and praise Him for doing that, we declare that gospel. We declare that provision to everyone who sees us. When we worship Him here on Sundays and an unbeliever comes into our midst, they see it, they hear it, they feel it, and hopefully they'll believe it. And when you worship God on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday, when you're not here, when you're out in the world and you're demonstrating what a saved life looks like, you're demonstrating what the life of a Christian really is like, you proclaim to the world that Jesus died for their sins, that He rose from the dead, and that they too can be free. When worship is restored, when it's done rightly, it proclaims that atonement, that forgiveness that we have in Jesus. God's faithful in that too, right? He said so. 1 John says that if we confess our sins, He is what? Faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, that goes for, for the lost for those who have not been born again, who are still living in their sin, if they will confess their sin to God, He will forgive them by the blood of Jesus and make them clean, give them new life. But that goes for you Christians as well. You might be born again. Heaven may be your home. Oh, but what's taking priority? What's first place right now? If it's not the worship of God, it's sin. And just the same, let me tell you this. If you will confess that sin to God, specifically, specifically, tell Him what it is that's taken first place. Confess that sin to God. He will be faithful and just to forgive you of that sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what I'm calling on you to do today. I'm not a altar call, beg and plead and try to get people to come down front kind of guy. You know that. I'm not going to manipulate your emotions and try to drag some response out of you. But I'm going to say this. For the next few minutes, it's going to be quiet in here. We're not going to sing yet. And I'm going to come kneel right here and pray. And if you want to be serious about the work of God and about living the life that God wants you to live as a Christian, I want you to come pray with me. you need to confess your sin, confess it. Whisper it, mumble it, cry it, do it in your head. I don't care. Confess your sin to God today. Don't let this stuff go on. If you need to be born again, if you're lost in your sins and going to hell, there's forgiveness for you in Jesus. Would any of you come join me in prayer?